From 1978 to 1995, Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber, was the most wanted criminal in America. His reign of terror finally came to an end after evading the FBI for almost 18 years when his own brother turned him into the police. A promising young University of California at Berkeley math professor turned bread-baking backwoods hermit was in Helena's jail Thursday night while agents searched his Montana mountain shack for proof he is the anti-technology serial killer called the Unabomber. About 20 agents returned to the tar paper shack Thursday to seek evidence that Theodore John Kaczynski, 53, carried out a nearly 18-year string of bombings around the country, including five in Northern California, that killed three and injured 23. After the Unabomber's arrest, the country breathed a collective sigh of relief. But many were left with the same burning question. How did Kaczynski go from promising math professor to anti-technology terrorist? Scholar Stephen Jones says it might have something to do with an experiment he participated in as a student at Harvard. It's been suggested, in fact, that his that some of his troubles, his attitude toward technology may have its roots in experience he had at Harvard. He was part of an experiment there on undergraduates that's now widely viewed as, as unethical and, and cruel. Uh, where the students were subjected to all kinds of uh, verbal abuse and and uh, had to write essays and then have them critiqued in public and so on over the mm. course of, of many months, often without knowing the details of, of what was going on in the experiment. This is between 1959 and 1962, so a, a long ways back. But in general, I think you're right that he's a product of that post-war, Cold War era and you see signs in the so-called manifesto of his interest in psychology and particularly behaviorism. And I think that there is a sense in which his, maybe his experiences at Harvard shaped his later rhetoric. Kaczynski goes on to graduate from Harvard and continues his studies at the University of Michigan, eventually becoming a math professor at Berkeley in 1967. A few years later, he quits his career in academia and withdraws from society to a remote cabin in Montana. He pretty soon begins to build these handmade bombs, symbolically made of wood, and then inscribed often with FC, which apparently stood for Freedom Club. So that's this becomes his signature. And he delivers some by hand. He posts a number of others and then and writes. You know, he has a typewriter in his cabin, and he writes a number of things, including the document that led to his arrest, uh, which was called by the by the press and by the FBI, the Unabomber Manifesto. There's obviously a great distance between withdrawing from one's career, moving into a cabin, buying a typewriter, and becoming someone who's actively building bombs. That's right. What's your sense about where this transition happened and who he chose to target? You know, I, ultimately, I don't know. I think that the decision to commit that kind of violence is a mystery. And whenever it happens, that kind of, which is sometimes glibly referred to as radicalization, that covers a lot of territory, actually, psychologically and personally, I think, in, in people's lives. But it, what we do know is that the, his targets were people who were in contact with or promoting what he saw as technological society from different angles. So academics and research, but also... For instance, sometimes people just in, in retail stores who were selling personal computers. And then he did have a kind of uh, vendetta against 
the press, which you know to, to rings ominously today. Which he re, he referred to as you know the propaganda machine and suggested this was another a big piece in the puzzle of the problem with with technological society. One year before his arrest, the Unabomber publishes Industrial Society and Its Future, a radical manifesto that reflected a broader anti-technology trend popularized by the neo-Luddites in the 1990s. But to truly understand the manifesto, Jones says it's crucial to note the difference between the historical Luddites of the 19th century in Britain and neo-Luddism, a movement that formed in America much later. The original Luddites, you know, were textile workers mostly, they were in these proto-unions that were descended from the guilds, and they were very much interested in very specific kinds of machinery and in restricting the use of those because they were putting them out of work. So they were a labor movement. They were focused on right. economic justice, and they were themselves technologists. That is, they were machinists. They used machines in their work all the time. They just wanted to use their machines, not the mm -hmm. newfangled labor-saving devices that the owners were bringing in. So that's very, very different from the neo-Luddites that really surfaced and, and made a big splash in the 1990s in this country. Were they not workers like the originals? Yeah, often they were white-collar workers or academics, intellectuals. They were people who were interested in a kind of individualized uh, lifestyle Luddism or a kind of anti-capitalist movement in some cases or anti-globalization movement that had a kind of neo-Luddite side to it. Sometimes they were eco-activists who saw in the Luddites a kind of historical antecedent, although I think that's a distortion of the original Luddites. Although not affiliated with the movement in any official capacity, the Unabomber's manifesto is tinged with neo-Luddite themes. These include technology and its adverse relationship to personal psychology, as well as technology as a kind of Frankenstein, a human creation that has become both malevolent and out of control. For me, it epitomizes the neo-Luddism of the 1990s in a couple of ways, in, in its focus on personal psychology and uh, making the rejection of technology an almost a kind of spiritual decision, a personal decision. Mm. But also, the manifesto is about a generalized psychological problem, you know, a kind of malaise. It has to do with things like a lack of self-esteem, oddly enough. Mm. And he attributes a lot of this especially to leftists. There's this whole section of the manifesto attacking what he calls leftism and political correctness, which he sees as an impediment to the coming revolution. And then the, the other way that it, that it seems to me to epitomize the neo-Luddism of its time is its focus on technology as something abstract – the notion that there's a kind of force outside of humanity that has taken on a life of its own uh, that is, mm. you know, is out to get us even though we made it and over which we have no more control is a, is a very sort of modern idea and that's emphasized throughout. For me, part of what's problematic about that is it suggests a kind of relinquishing of our, our responsibility or our authority over what it is we've made including the messes that we've made of the ecology, for mm -hmm, instance. Mm -hmm. um, so here, here in the midst of the Anthropocene, you know, it's, we're all cursed with what technology has wrought, but we're all responsible for it. And, and the danger of a kind of a monster of technology with a capital T is that it externalizes that and makes it no longer a human problem, but something uh, that we have no control over. So besides being abstract, the other thing I is that he suggests that that technology is, is ubiquitous, 
mm. that it's everywhere. It permeates the system. It's the basis for the entire modern system of society. And he uses this to argue, for example, that you can't relinquish just part of it. You can't separate the good technology from the bad technology. So the entire system is corrupt and has to be taken down. So this is a fascinating set of conclusions. I mean, this idea that technology is going to, in effect, destroy humankind, that it is a, a monster out of control. I mean, I, I, I certainly see your point about within the arguments there being a certain kind of recklessness about whether you can just let go of the wheel, so to speak. Um, but there are, there are a lot of other pieces of American popular culture that are making these kinds of arguments. You think of a film like The Terminator or any of the yes. dystopic films like Mad Max, you know, The Matrix. Yes. I mean, this yes. is an argument that's actually quite widespread. Absolutely. In fact, I think that that's, that is neo-Luddism and that it's extremely widespread, although the term's not as popular as it was in the 1990s. Um, and that, you know, after 1945, the sense that that technology is bigger than we can handle mm -hmm. is a perfectly legitimate initial response uh, to what, you know, to what we have made, to what humans have, have unleashed. And in popular culture, you see all sorts of uh, versions of this. A journalist recently attempted to cut all the major platforms out of her life, tried to perform an experiment. <laughs> when she eliminated Facebook and Google and, and right. Amazon and failed. You know, she admits that it, it's impossible uh, really to go on the kind of lifestyle she had in any way by doing that. And, and, of, and we're all becoming a little more sensitive, I think, in recent years to the dangers of ubiquitous surveillance, of big data. But right. that's precisely the point. It's a question of who controls that data, to what ends and what interests are being served uh, by these technologies. And those are the, the specific important questions that are elided or that, or that are overshadowed by a kind of neo-Luddite ideology of ubiquitous technology right. that's everywhere right. And, right. and impossible to combat except by the destruction of civilization. Now, now, you've written in your own work that there's an inherent relation between technology and terror, thinking about fears of cyber terrorism or runaway technological growth and such. How might the neo-Luddites and the Unabomber be an expression of that linkage? Yeah, I mean, I think in a, in, a, in a very precise way, it's clear that what Kaczynski was involved in was a campaign of terror. Mm. Uh, the idea was that it's not – the violence itself is a part of it, but the violence is part of a kind of campaign that's ideological and that's aimed at – producing a certain affective response in the public. You know, you, you terrorize because of the threat of violence, not just because of the acts of violence, as we all well know. So there is a kind of a sense that, that if technology really is an autonomous and inhuman force that permeates every aspect of modern society, then what's needed to respond to it is a counter-conspiracy of sorts. You have to have a kind of all-pervasive kind of counter-movement. And in some ways, it doesn't matter who you bomb if they're even tangentially connected to the technological society, then this is this can be spun as a, a kind of just cause. Uh, once it's been, it's been made total and ubiquitous and autonomous. So, terror is one kind of response to being terrified of this, of these forces. I think of technology, um, among others. Stephen Jones is the DeBartolo Chair in Liberal Arts and Professor of Digital Humanities at the University of South Florida. He's the author of Against Technology, From Luddites to Neo-Luddism. 